0: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
1: Thank you, sir, to you and you and you, and welcome to this Thursday edition of Lifeline for the 19th day of October. Trust, you've had a good week so far. The good news is we're getting a good containment level on the fires to the north and south of us. Weather conditions are starting to cooperate a little bit more, and the other encourage piece of news is tomorrow is friday and i talk to your boss if you do a good job we have agreed to let you take uh, not tomorrow off but the two days following that just you know yeah just because we're nice (laughs) at any rate let's get down to cases shall we um long-time listeners to this program know that there is a lot a lot that i really agree with politically with our current governor and in fact. Um, campaigned against his third and fourth terms. The only governor in California to ever be seated for that long. And so when Jerry Brown does something right, he deserves a nice round of applause. And uh, we're going to give him a nice round of applause here because the governor has made a right decision in the face of what the legislature does with so many wrong decisions. Here to explain is constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, and counselor. It's so refreshing to have good news out of Sacramento for a change.
2: Oh, it certainly is. And it wasn't uh, news that we were expecting either. Uh, this legislation, it was AB 569, passed uh, overwhelmingly in the state Senate, the state assembly. And it looked like it was just going full steam ahead to the, past the governor's desk. Uh, but Sunday he surprised us and he actually vetoed it. And it was, uh, such a, uh, such a, a wonderful, uh, burst of good news considering how severe, uh, this legislation would have been on virtually, uh, every religious institution and, uh, private Christian school in the state of California.
1: Let's talk a bit about the background on this bill, as we have been discussing for a low these many months now. Uh, this was an attempt to essentially um, bring religious organizations, schools, religious institutes in line, so to speak, uh, with the California pro-abortion agenda, and it provided for some pretty heavy fines and even criminal penalties um, if, in fact... Um, there was a disconnect between the desire of the state and what the business or organization wanted to do or between the organization and its employees. So take us a little bit deeper, and, and if you can, Counselor, draw us uh, parallels, if there are any, between other similar situations like the Little Sisters of the Poor or the uh, Burtwell versus Hobby Lobby case.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's real, real important. Uh, what this would, would do is it would require all employers, including, like I say, churches, religious institutions, uh, not to, to and be able to, um, to, to fire an employee or to punish an employee uh, when that employee uh, in, engages in, um, in sexual conduct um, or uh, has an abortion that are in violation of that institution's beliefs and values. Uh, it would have applied to it, say, for example, like a, a crisis pregnancy center, pro-life pregnancy center. And if the, one of their counselors had an abortion and was open about it, said, so I think this is a great thing, and I'm going to tell all the women in crisis I meet with that it, it was a great thing. There's nothing that that pregnancy clinic could do, even though their her messaging would be completely different uh, than what they stand for. And also, it, it basically says to religious institutions, uh, you know, uh, you can have employees they don't practice what you preach, and there's nothing you can do about it, despite your deeply, sincerely held religious beliefs. And of course, uh, we saw in the Hobby Lobby case where the Supreme Court upheld uh, the rights of, uh, of business owners uh, to have um, moral standards in, in accordance with their uh, deeply held religious beliefs. And um, and we think we will see this. We'll see the same thing actually coming out in the Little Sisters, which is a wonderful uh, ministry rights uh, case. So uh, it's it's a definite success. But if it had become law, we at Pacific Justice already had our plaintiffs. We already had our our complaint ready to be filed. We were just very pleased that this time around we didn't have to.
1: What do you think... um Persuaded the governor to run the opposite direction. I mean, normally there's such harmony between the the governor's ideological bent and that of the controlling party in this state, the Democrat Party, that typically it's almost a fait accompli that once the legislature passes a bill, no matter how ridiculous, how outlandish, it's going to go onto the governor's desk for his signature. Why the departure? Do you think?
2: Well, I think part of it is the fact that Governor Jerry Brown is uh, has been around a good while. Uh, and he has, a, I think, more of a sense of, of independence from the legislature, unlike many governors. Uh, you know, he obviously signs usually most of the stuff he gets from them. Uh, but this time, I think he looked at it and understood how a, how radical it actually would be. Uh, number one, you know, for the government to have this kind of a, of a mandated control over religious institutions and uh, crisis pregnancy centers. But second, I also think, also think he had some some wise counsel that let him know that, hey, if you sign this, um, there's going to be a lawsuit filed the next day, and they have a good chance of winning because this is so intrusive and so controlling with regards to religious institutions by the government uh, that uh, there's a good chance that uh, that in fact the other side will win, and uh, this this will have your signature on it. And so I think that I think both were, were considerations that he had to. Uh, take to heart in making the decision to go ahead and veto it. It was just too radical, uh, too unconstitutional, and it was just so blatant in that regard that I think he really felt he had to, had to
1: veto it. It's got to be a case, too, where at this stage in his political career, uh, he, he must be thinking about legacy. And uh, yeah. there have been enough jokes made about his first two terms in office as governor. Uh, we don't quite hear uh, as many comments about him uh, in the second round here, with about a 20 year separation between sets of terms. But I've got to imagine at this juncture, as he's beginning to wind up not only his time in the governor's mansion, but quite frankly, probably his time in politics, I really can't see him going on to anything else from here, that that notion of not wanting to attach his name to something that could have been such an utter failure from a constitutional law standpoint had to have been a consideration.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, and he is, um, you know, at the the final, you know, the final sunset, if you will, of his political career. And I do think there's a different mindset that can kick in in uh, thinking about not so much political jockeying and pleasing interest groups. But instead, thinking about their legacy and uh, what they want to be known for, and and no governor wants to be known for something that is uh, stricken down as as unconstitutional um, as as I think this this would be. And um, so I think I think he uh, I think he did the right thing. Now the downside is uh, he is going to be leaving, and we are going to have a new governor. And unfortunately, this legislation will undoubtedly come right back again up to the new governor's desk. And that new governor, uh, there's a good chance, looking at the possible candidates, that that new governor will sign this to appease uh, radical interest groups from the left, and that could be a real uh, major attack in, on religious freedom. We, of course, and we, of course, the Pacific Justice Institute, uh, will be uh, standing ready uh, to file a lawsuit once that, uh, and if it is signed, into law.
1: And at the end of the day, uh, there is a degree to which I think we can take some comfort, while we never want to see bad law, uh, Come about. Uh, There are still at least protections available to us through both the California and the federal level constitution to help provide some relief, provide some protections. Uh, I don't have a lot of faith in uh, the potential uh, decisions from um, levels of um, jurisprudence such as the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, but certainly if it had to go higher, there is some hope that uh, there will be a shared interest in recognizing, as the Supreme Court heretofore has. Uh, the individual religious freedom rights of not only um, people of faith in the the Christian realm or in, in the church realm, but even in the private and business sector realm. So good news certainly tonight with Governor Jerry Brown late in the evening over the weekend uh, vetoing, uh, vetoing Assembly Bill 569 that really, really um, significantly hampered the ability of religious institutions to hire and retain employees consistent with teaching's on uh, such important matters as the sanctity of life. And so uh, not often do we say hats off to Jerry Brown, but, you know, you can make a note on this day, the 19th of October in 2017. By golly, Craig Roberts said it. Thanks to Brad Dake, his constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. More information, by the way, about his fine organization on the web at pji.org. That's pji o r 5.15 on the clock. Time to head over to the KFAX Traffic Center as we say good afternoon to Michael Bennett with the latest on your Thursday ride home. Hey, Michael.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Tolerance. It's a term bantied about with great abandon these days, especially by those on the left. Liberals who wish for freedom of expression and understanding for all peoples of all persuasions, hawking all agendas. eh, With the sole caveat that tolerance is tossed unceremoniously out the window when it comes to those deemed by the so-called tolerant left to be Intolerant, And by intolerant, they mean pretty much anyone who doesn't tout their party line or embrace their body politic. A new book out that gives us the inside story to this issue of an attempt by the liberal left to silence everyone else. The book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. Its author, well-known political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, right. let's talk a yeah. bit about this attack on free speech, coming from kind of an unusual end of the political spectrum. I mean, aren't these the same people, the students of yesterday and the teachers of today, that began the free speech movement on the Berkeley campus in the 1960s?
3: Yes, exactly. And I, I call the people in the book the liberal left to distinguish them from what I consider just the average Democrat or even your average principal liberal, who still really holds firm to those ideas of tolerance and diversity and free speech that you were just referring to. Uh, and, and that's what makes I think what they're doing that much more troubling is because on the one hand they they still claim to value these things while at the same time They are using all sorts of different tactics to silence the debates, to say certain things, you know, certain debates are over, that we aren't allowed to talk about certain things anymore, and if you do talk about them, you will be labeled with some toxic moniker that's, you know, going to make you radioactive, basically, to the rest of society.
1: And, and how do they live with themselves, in the sense, and, and and you've had a chance to deal with both ends of the political spectrum, both as a reporter and a news analyst. There's this sense, I think, that some of them are out there promoting the same kind of stereotypes that they themselves purport to hate. Right. Well, I think
3: that they are able to do it because they really do believe that what they're doing is a righteous act. They They believe that they have the capital T Truth, that they know what is right and that there really is nothing to debate and so that they don't they they don't feel that there is a need to for example treat somebody who opposes same-sex marriage as anything other than a homophobe or a bigot and and so you know even though i i do support same-sex marriage i i recognize that there are people who don't that are people of goodwill and that you know then that the best way to engage people is to um, persuasion, uh you know, rather than coercion, rather than trying to silence them. And the liberal left doesn't see it that way. They really do believe that the righteous act is to just really sort of isolate that person from society by saying, no, you know, you're you're a homophobe, and uh, you know, we don't don't even need to talk to
1: you about it. Yeah, the irony is, if they believe so strongly in their position, you would think that the notion of civility and honesty in public discourse, in the end, would allow the the quote-unquote truth to win out, but yet they don't apparently see it that way, and I have to wonder if there's almost a sense of of compartmentalizing going on here. You you resided inside of the Clinton administration as a Clinton appointee from 92 to 98. From that kind of uh, viewpoint, from the kind of the inside looking out. Is there a lot of compartmentalization that goes on?
3: I don't. I. I don't think that they really feel a need to compartmentalize because, like I said, they really do believe that they believe so strongly in what they're doing that they they feel like that they're on the right so called right side of history or the you know the right side of the issue and and so that they you know there's, I there's this example this just happened last month of a uh, uh, Christina Hoff summer who's She's an AEI scholar, and she came. She went to Georgetown and Oberlin University in the same month to speak on what she called equity feminism. It's her version of feminism, which is different from liberal feminism. And, you know, she was treated almost like a terrorist coming to campus. It was, you know, she had to have security, and they had people there holding signs of their trigger warning, so they were being triggered, you know, that this is going to cause them some sort of emotional distress and danger and there were signs for a safe room where you could go and and be safe while she's you know on campus talking to the campus republicans about her her vision of feminism and just treating treating differing ideas as actually dangerous you know that that's i think that that is what is, it takes it away from just your basic intolerance of uh, i can't hear this that it's actually posing a danger and need, and and they try to get the speeches canceled and if they can't get the speeches canceled then they try to, they're very disruptive um or they try to delegitimize the speaker by making them seem like they're saying these horrific things when all they're doing is expressing a different opinion.
1: And the irony is that seems to be kind of the, out of the arsenal of, uh, of tools that they utilize, seems to be some of the more popular approaches, stigmatization, uh, delegitimizing, as you're saying, sometimes even going as far as, as dehumanizing. Uh, many of your colleagues, some of which um, as, as commentators that appear on other networks, I won't mention MSNBC, uh, make much game of this sport of dehumanizing those that have differing opinions.
3: Yeah. I mean, dehumanizing is a tactic you see in particular towards uh, conservative women or uh, non-white conservatives. So it's basically trying to turn them into, you know, non non because You don't even need to take them seriously. And with, with conservative women, they will do it through, you know, she's not really a woman. They don't speak for women. The only women who speak for women are pro-choice Democrats, um, that they are, you know, bush in a skirt – Uh, They're sort of these female impersonators. These are some of the the words that have been used to describe uh, conservative women. Or they objectify them, which is another form of dehumanization, which actually what is so noxious about this is that it's feminists who have came up with this theory that objectifying women is dehumanizing, and it's actually very effective. It's a very effective way to, to make people not take a woman seriously. So if you focus obsessively on her body or her looks or what she's wearing, as they did with, for example, Sarah Palin, and turn her into a sex object, then voters start to you know, not see this person any longer as even a potentially serious person. They just see them as a sex object. And so these are the kind of tactics that they use, even though they say – they
1: stand for women. but What I don't understand is, and maybe you can shed some light on this, why do mainstream liberals. Give give sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card to some of these commentators and, and so-called news reporters who, who use this kind of language. For example, you mentioned about uh, references to people like uh, either Sarah Palin or uh, Michelle Bachman as, as bimbos. I think at one time, didn't Ed Schultz even use that yeah. demeaning term uh, directed toward you? And, and, and when it's done, the liberal left seems to look the other way. But can you imagine anyone on Fox News making a reference to, say, Hillary Clinton as the um, Democrat candidate bimbo yes. and getting away with it?
3: No, of course not. I mean, there's a double standard. And at, at some they have started to be shamed by it, and so they have some groups have started to recognize that they have to condemn uh, condemn this when it's happening to conservative women. Now, they always kind of do it in this grudging way, you know, like, oh, yeah, I guess we have to <laughs> You know, we have to stand up for this, but you know they're not. But but for a long time they didn't, and a lot of them were participants in it. That's the thing that a lot of the people who were making the misogynist attacks against Sarah Palin were self-described feminists. So it, you know, it, it, it's and so it's, it's sometimes it's them, and then the other times it's sitting by, you know, while Keith Olbermann while he was. You know, sitting atop his perch at MSNBC is doing it, whether it's Chris Matthews that is doing it, uh, they, you know, they just sit there and they, they don't, they, they just either ignore it or they, um, you know, maybe will find something to complain about now and then, but it doesn't cause the full scale hysteria that you see, like what you saw, what happened when, when Rush Limbaugh had, you know, had, uh, called Sandra Fluck, you know, a slut, which he, He apologized – well, actually, I don't know if he apologized, but he was treated as if he had to, uh, you know, lose his show over that, right? You know, and this is one incident versus continuous incidents of liberal men that are completely ignored
1: what 's ironic about this is just how insidious and widespread all this is, as you delineate inside the pages of the silencing we We, we find this approach to um, again just the 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 closing down of civil dialogue. Stigmatization, dehumanization of the opposition, so to speak, that occurs not only on college campuses, as we referred to a moment ago. It's taking place uh, certainly within uh, politics, within the, the the Democrat Party. We see it taking place in in the news arena. It's almost as if there's there's no free um, antagonizing zone where actual discourse and exchange of, of ideas can take place anymore, without fearful of of suddenly coming under attack. Or having even your very legitimacy being questioned
3: right I think mean, that's exactly right um, yeah and I just did want to clarify that Russ, I just checked that rush Limbaugh did apologize to her which is like one extra step that we don't often see by the uh, the men uh, you know on the left who just are doing this with in, impunity and are never are never criticized so you know I do think that um, the delegitimizing that's going on which I get into in the in the book so much is just is such an effective tactic to uh, to avoid debate, uh, to, to to not have to, you know, somebody says something and you don't have to engage them on what they actually said. Uh, instead, you can just pick out something about them that other people are not going to like. Other people do not want to listen to somebody who who they've been convinced is a racist. They do not want to listen to somebody who they've convinced have been convinced of is an is an Islamophobe or you know or a rape denier, as they call the people who question the campus rape statistics and it's just kinda of, they're neither conversation enders not conversation starters. It's not encouraging robust debate uh and, and which is really how we get knowledge in society. Uh instead it's encouraging really us just accepting what a certain group of people have decided is the truth and we're not supposed to question it.
1: Kirsten Powers, our guest today on this edition of Lifeline, we're talking about her new book called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The new book, by the way, just released by Regnery Press, available at Bay Area bookstores as well as through Amazon.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Kirsten Powers as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to Lifeline. Our special guest today, well, you certainly know her as a political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor, and now a new book called The Silencing. We're visiting today with Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, you relay an example of how insidious all of this is taking place on college campuses in terms of almost uh, sort of grooming students into this sense of, um, of intolerance uh, by talking about um, Lafayette College and, and their so called bias response team. Uh, share this example with listeners from the book, if you would, and then give us a sense of just how widespread is this mentality across campuses in America today.
3: Well, the, these kinds of things are starting to crop up, and I expect them to probably spread, which is the idea that you know, if you, something on campus happens that you feel was somehow offensive. You know, some sort of bias, whether it's a racial bias or you know, gender bias or something, that you can report people for it. Uh, and that it's treated as if it's, uh, almost like a bodily harm that has occurred to you. And this is something that comes up throughout the, the book in, in, in various stories, which was particularly alarming to me, which was that, you know, taking offense or even just disagreement or having to see something or hear something that you don't like is really just often described as a violent event. That's the language that's used. I talk about the professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, who physically attacked a pro-life student who was part of a peaceful demonstration and told the police officer when she was arrested that she was, quote-unquote, triggered, which is a word that comes up throughout the book, uh, that that she was triggered by having to encounter this peaceful demonstration that she shouldn't have to see something like this, that it's, you know, this is supposed to be her safe space. This is a professor, um, you know, who doesn't want to have to encounter a view that she doesn't like and that, and treats it just the expression of the view as an attack. And so this is the mentality that we have that is spreading, which is, which is that, you know, in that case, that's an outlier. Usually it doesn't involve somebody physically attacking somebody, the response. But there, there are other ways that the person is then silenced because, you know, they say, well, I, I just I, I can't, you know, I, just, it, it was, I can't I can't see that. I can't hear that. I can't. It's, you know, the crazy. irony is, is that you, when you breakdown.
1: when you put this in context, for those of us that are old enough to remember, a, a lot of the new liberalism today, whether it be on college campuses or in the mainstream media, sounds like a lot of the old McCarthyism of the 1950s.
3: Yeah, very similar And it's, there's yeah, there's this aspect of who you talk to also uh, is, is indicative of, of who you are versus what you say or what you think And I experienced this actually when my book came out When uh, I gave excerpts of the book to various publications Including The Daily Beast, which I write for And is considered, a, a, you know, left of center But also to a publication at the Heritage Foundation Which is conservative And because of that, I had all these a liberal lefties coming after me saying that I, you know, because I had allowed the Heritage Foundation to run an excerpt that I, you know, that that just proved that I was a right-wing hack and my book was somehow backed by the Heritage Foundation. Some, suddenly you
1: know I mean? you're a shill, shill for the left, or for the right, right rather. <laughs>
3: yeah, I mean, but, but never mind that, like, I ran excerpts in the Daily Beast. You know what I mean? It doesn't it's just, they, they just look for some kind of relationship that they can use to prove that you're a secret, you know, closet conservative. I have a bunch of examples in the book of how they really use this against journalists. To scare journalists to into not pursuing stories because they will be accused of being closet conservatives because they are investigating the Obama administration or they're investigating Republicans. But if they investigate, uh, you know, the, the right the the right people, then uh, then they're going to they, if they investigate Republicans, they are going to be fine. But if they investigate Democrats, are not. So you'll have people like Cheryl Agneson, who award-winning investigations of both parties but all you'll hear about from the liberal left is how she investigated the Obama administration and therefore she's this she's literally this partisan uh you know conservative hack
1: you know, the irony is this agenda, though, just bubbles so, 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 uh, close to the surface, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, for example, uh, Chris Hayes recently did what he called a Hillary Clinton study guide for millennials, where he touted all the wonderful things that she apparently had done before most of them, quite frankly, had ever even been born. And yet, can you imagine if, say, Fox News attempted to do a, a new millennials guide to Ben Carson, what, what, what kind of response you would see from the left?
3: Right, well, that's total standard. I mean, you can't there you know there's this idea that uh, you know they spent all this time I have a whole chapter on it trying to be Fox News uh, the White House did saying you know they're not a real news organization and uh, and and telling other news organizations that they shouldn't treat them as real news organizations and meanwhile MSNBC is doing this times a million, you know, and and I'm not. I actually, I think MSNBC is free to do that. I don't. And if and if, the, and if George Bush had ever come out and said they weren't legitimate, I would have been the first person to defend them. You know, I don't. I think that they they're they're free to you know have, have whatever kind of program they want to have, and uh and I and I don't think that that means that you know if Chris Hayes does something on one show that. Uh, you know, a reporter or a host from another show is somehow held accountable for that, right? I mean, like, the same way, like, they try to merge everything at Fox together. It's like, well, because there's Sean Hannity, then that means that Brett Baer can't be trusted. Well, those two things have nothing to do with each other. You know, they're completely different shows. And, um, and one is an expressly an opinion show. And so, yeah, there's, just not, there's an absolute double standard where you had Obama administration officials leaving and going to work for MSNBC after same people who said that Fox was not a legitimate news organization.
1: Help us understand something here. Uh, how much of this, in your opinion, is is just based on that sense of unfamiliarity breeding contempt? In other words, that it's easy to either dislike or hate what you don't know or don't understand. So many people, particularly for the, the, the political world inside the beltway, don't have an opportunity to really get to know, quote unquote, the enemy or the other side. And so as a result, because of that, that sense of ignorance, we'll call it, uh, that, that, that they that they sort of have this, this this deepening, abiding sense of acrimony shown toward those who don't share the same opinion.
3: Yeah, yeah, I think that there's I, I, there's definitely an element of that. It's very hard to sustain these, the, the, these ideas, for example, that every single person who opposes same-sex marriage is a homophobe if you actually have friends or people that you're opposed to who have sincere religious beliefs that lead them to oppose same-sex marriage and and you can see you know that they they aren't homophobes i'm not saying that the person's never a homophobe but i'm just saying that that's you know that that at least in my experience the people that i know that that's not what's driving them what's driving them is a religious belief so i do think there is that um but i I don't the the problem with the illiberal left is they really aren't interested in, in knowing people who are different than them and they because they are so convinced that they are right. that they, it just does not seem to have occurred to them that uh, that they could be wrong. But, you know, I used to be pretty closed-minded, and I was definitely, you know, I'd worked in the Clinton administration, Democratic politics, very liberal family, and uh, I had a lot of these, these ideas as well that I had it all figured out. And basically, working at Fox News and, and then later in life, Conversion to Christianity, where I started... Being around obviously a lot of Christians and more conservatives, I, you know, it did slowly break down my my prejudices. Frankly, I mean, they were prejudices. Uh, where I, could, you know, I didn't necessarily change my political views, but I was able to see, oh, you know, there is a debate to be had here. Uh, there are things to talk about, and, and these are legitimate views. They're just different than mine.
1: So at the end of the day, while it's it's often kind of surprising to see how closed-minded so many so-called open-minded liberals really are, there is hope. And, 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 and I think sometimes the opportunity to the degree to which it's possible – and I'm just thinking about people that are engaged in the day-to-day business of going about uh, their affairs – to engage with people in mm-hmm. a loving, f- legitimate, intellectual fashion – Concerning the issues of the day, not with heated exchange and raised voices, but just just an, an open-minded exchange of ideas, can sometimes eventually bring people around to another point of view.
3: I think so. Yeah, it's, it's often slow, so I think people get discouraged. Uh, you know, I think it's not, it's not like you're going to meet somebody one time and that's going to happen. But I do think over time, and I've had a lot of friends tell me that it's, you know, knowing me also has changed their views on some things or even, you know, they have their, their ideas about what a liberal is like or what a liberal thinks. And, and, you know, and so I think, you know, it's been beneficial in both directions.
1: Well, the book certainly is very engaging in helping us to not only better understand what's taking place here, the dynamic between the two sides, so to speak, but also, I think, uh, uh, gives us a sense of hope that we can engage in some dialogue and eventually see some change. Kristen Powers, the book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The book, published by Regnery Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And, of course, Regnery Press, a part of the company that owns this fine radio station.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Gary Beckner joins us now, Executive Director of the Association of American Educators. And I understand a new survey out, uh, cooperation between Gallup and Phi Delta Kappa, looking at the state and perception of public school education and the public teachers in America. Give us some of the, the highlights, if you would, Gary. Did, did we learn a lot about changing attitudes or changing perceptions based on the, uh, the experiences in places like Wisconsin and Ohio?
0: Oh, we have. And by the way, Craig, thank you very much for allowing us to be on the air with you. We appreciate it. Even though we're the fastest growing national organization of our kind, we're probably still the best-kept secret, too, so this is a a thrill to be on the air with you. Uh, Yeah, the Phi Delta Kappa Gallup survey, it it just came out this week, uh, indicates what we as an organization have known for quite a while uh, from our own surveys, that Americans um, are getting very frustrated with, and unfortunately, they're getting frustrated with teachers, but that is misdirected, that anger, because the, the Gallup survey actually kind of underscored what we know and that Americans really continue to support their teachers, but not their teacher unions. And that disconnect is really giving teachers a black eye. Uh, the survey showed that 71% of respondents said that they have trust and confidence in American teachers still. However, when asked about the teacher unions, only 47% Actually, 47% said they believe the unions have hurt education compared to only 26% believing that unions have helped education. So we've got to work hard to separate uh, this synonymous synony- this uh, connection of unions and public education uh, and get back to just uh, teachers and helping teachers to do what we do best.
1: Do you think there's a level at which the, the black eye that has come and again i agree with you i think a lot of the anger the frustration has been misdirected but do you think there's a level gary that a degree to which the black eye that has been given to education by the unions is deservedly
0: sure absolutely when when you just follow the the takeover of public education by the unions uh, since 19 the mid 1960s on i mean i i just want to go back for a second even Even then, when it started to happen, when the unions started taking over public education, uh, even leaders of the NEA thought that was a bad idea. I mean, in a a Nostradamus uh, moment in 1968, the former NEA Executive Secretary, uh, Dr. Bill Carr, William Carr, warned the convention members at the NEA convention that this would someday lead to, 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 to destroy the competence of the public in, in education.
1: Well, i got to tell you, because, and, I, and I asked that question, uh, Gary, not, not to necessarily throw uh, stones, but uh, years ago I obtained a copy of a publication that was produced by the NEA and the California Teachers Association entitled Guidelines for Academic Freedom in the Public Schools. And when I read what the union thinks about conservatives and uh, those that are concerned about getting their children a, a quality-based education that still protects the, the, the mores of the family uh, and who the union considers to be their enemy. I was appalled. And I thought, you know, you're, you're painting the majority of the parents that send their kids to your schools as the enemy here Uh, And they're not the enemy. If anything, I think the perception by a lot of parents who really understand the agendizing of education that's been perpetrated by the unions as as the unions being the real enemy of both teachers and students in education.
0: Absolutely. There's so much evidence just following. There's a wonderful book written by Dr. Um, Dennis Cuddy, C u d d y of the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Some some years back, he was working in the uh, Reagan administration. I believe could have been could have been a George Bush Senior, but I think it was Reagan. And he did he just uh, was flabbergasted when he started uh, coming up against some of the education reform initiatives that the Department of Education was trying to put out, and then seeing the pushback from the from the NEA in particular, the AFT was there as well pushing back. But he started investigating the history of why they would be so against reforms that would be in the best interest of teachers and especially kids. And he discovered that they have an agenda that has nothing to do with educating our children and has very little to do with actually protecting and helping our teachers. It's all about changing, transforming this country from a republic into a socialist nation. And if you and you, you think we overspeak this, but we can give you the booklets, and we can show you from our own research actual document that we produced called Powerful Failure, how the National Education Association fails to use its influence for education to show you that their agenda has nothing to do with education and very little to do with helping teachers.
1: Oh, I tell you what, uh, Gary, you're preaching to the choir here. I don't think you overspeak it. If anything, I might suggest maybe you underspeak it. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the agenda because... that is promoted by the unions, that actually is sole and separate from the agenda supported by most, you know, rank and file teachers, are, are miles apart. You know, it's interesting because I have long believed that, that education is a partnership, that it ought to be a, a dual responsibility between the parents and and the teachers. I don't think that parents ought to just dump their kids on uh, public educators and expect them to come back, you know, after a six or seven hour study day. Uh, Brilliant. Uh, There's no accountability. There's no effort put in oftentimes by parents today. And I think that's a dirty shame. And I think the poor performance numbers that we're seeing in many of our schools across the country, the, the responsibility of which needs to be borne out by both the teachers and the parents. That said, I have often wondered why so much pushback by the unions – hello, CTA, are you listening – why so much pushback – by the unions to create any kind of system of accountability. i got to tell you, one of the most dangerous things, I think, to public education or the success thereof today is this whole idea of tenure and the idea that just by the amount of time in service, you somehow magically reach the location or 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 the position in your scholastic career as an educator where you're now exempt from any level of accountability, that you no longer ought to fear a lack of performance Uh, you know, that doesn't happen in the private sector. If I don't perform at my job, the boss will come in one day and say, you got to straighten up and fly right, or guess what? There's 10 other talk show hosts sitting behind you that'd be happy to have your job. Why do the unions think that teachers ought to be exempt from that level of accountability?
0: Well, Craig, uh, you'll be, first of all, you'll be happy to know that It's the union's agenda. It's not necessarily a teacher's agenda. Our own surveys have indicated that our membership, which you have to understand our members would be people that are looking for an alternative, a professional alternative to labor unions, so they would have a different point of view. But these are top teachers. These are national teachers of the year. These are good people. And they would agree that our our last survey showed that 73% of uh, our members thought that the Colorado policy, the new policy for teachers in that state, where teachers can lose tenure if they're deemed ineffective for two consecutive years, our guys, by a vast majority, thought that's a good idea. I mean, there's, there should be no job for life, especially if it has nothing to do, especially if you're a poor performer. I mean, it's just so you'll be happy to know that many, many, many teachers agree with
1: that. Well, I know that some that have told me and confided in me privately have said, you know, there's, there's nothing worse for our profession than those who are tenured, who have given up who maybe should never have been in the profession in the first place, and as a result of their protected status by the unions, ultimately drag everybody down. You know, that notion of one bad apple ruins the whole bunch.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, remember, the union's job is to protect jobs. That's their job. And their, their goal uh, is to make sure that uh, legislatively across the country, as in California, this is a constant battle in states across the country, 27 states in this nation... The unions, like in California, are allowed to take dues from teachers' paychecks whether the teachers want to have, be represented by that union or not.
1: See, I'm, I'm comfortable with the role of unions in collective bargaining and protecting, you know, teachers' rights and teachers' benefits and, and you know, uh, work labor, uh, labor hours and things of that sort. I'm fine for all of that. Uh, my problem, Gary, is when the so-called interests of the union or interests of the teachers are now running contrarian to what is in the best interest of the parents and their students because in the end teachers have to realize these kids don't belong to you and the minute you think that you've got so-called academic freedom to begin teaching a standard or a moral that runs contrary to what is taught in my household we got a big problem
0: that's right well change is only going to come when enough of americas teachers wake up to the fact that being inextricably linked to labor unions will never allow them to get the kind of respect and rewards they seek and, and Put it another way, here's the bottom line. Teachers will never get the pay they deserve if they continue to be linked with organized labor.
1: All right, I want you to stop on that for a moment, Gary, because I have got the 64,000, oh, it's more than that. It's got so many zeros behind it. The question is unbelievable. I have a question for you that I have yet to have a professional educator ever be able to answer for me. Maybe it's going to be a first year on Lifeline. We're talking with Gary Becker, Executive Director of the Association of American Educators. Bit of a different tone, as you perhaps detect, from what has been the typical dialogue with representatives of the CTA or the NEA for some inexplicable reason who will no longer come on this program. Don't know why. We'll, t- <laughs> we'll see if Gary's still on the line when we come back after the... Nah, he's brave. I'll be good to you, Gary, but I got a question I think you'll find fascinating. Let's come back with more of our conversation right around the corner.